Well, good morning. I'm John, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to have you all. For those of you all that have been here with us for the uh, past nine months, you'll notice that it feels a little less prison-y in here. Um, Like Richard said, we had some folks that come and just slowly trying to make our space feel more warm so that you would feel um, warm and welcome as you come here. So we're glad to have you here. Uh, Bow with me and pray, and we'll ask for the Lord's help as we Get ready to spend some time in his word. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here right now, uh, this room could be split in half. There's those of us in here, um, and life is going really well, and it's easy to take things for granted, and there's those of us where life is going really poorly, and it's um, hard to think that it'll end. I pray that regardless of where we find ourselves here in this room, that we would find hope in your word, that we would be reminded that you are a God that loves and a God that cares. And um, so I pray that as we see you clearly, that our lives and our hearts would change. So draw us close to you, Father. Remind us of how good you are um, or convince us, Father, for those of us that doubt your goodness. I pray it would be abundantly clear in your word that you are a God that loves and does care. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 13, that's where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 13. I want to start off with a question. How many of y'all have seen a house burn down? All right, yeah, folks that are raising their hands. I meant for y'all to think about that, but I'm glad for the, those of y'all that did raise your hands. Uh, I did, and the very first time that I saw one was when I was really, really young, and I want to set a little bit of the context for you. Uh, I was about six years old, and we just moved into our first house. Uh, Prior to this, it was my mom and my dad and my four brothers and sisters and I, and we lived in a three-bedroom apartment, and it was cramped, but then we finally got into this house. Um, And this house was big, right? It had all of this space comfortable. I felt so impressed, right? We were in this house. I felt like it was secure. I felt like it was indestructible. And I never had a a thought back then at six years old of what life would be like outside of this house. I felt good. I felt safe. I was impressed by all of what I had. And then one night we wake up and we hear, um, sirens and alarms and all of this stuff. And we go outside and right across the street from us, um, there's this house that's just like ours and it's burning down. And I remember all the safety and security that I felt. I remember going from being so impressed with how uh, indestructible I thought my house was to being so distressed and depressed when I saw just how quickly it all could burn down. And then it kind of led me into this place where I felt like if that could take place to their house across the street, what would stop something like that from taking place in our house? And I started to just fear this loss of my house. It may not have been a house that's burned down for you, but I feel like that if we could split this room in half, both uh, we kind of find ourselves in this place where um, we're so connected to the things that, that we have. That there's some of us in here that life is really going well for us. And we have all of these things, right? We have the, the job that we want, the, family that we want. We're in the church that we want. Things are just good and it feels like life's going to be good and it's going to be secure and it's going to be this way forever. And we can get so comfortable in where we are uh, that we start to take the things that we have for granted and we really don't use them towards any, any, any end. We just look and it's like life's good and I enjoy the life that I have. I'm impressed by what I have. Folks that Look at me, they're impressed by what I have. Or there's those of us in the room that have had those good things and we've lost those good things and now we kind of find ourselves in this place of constant distress 
or depression that that we've seen, right? Like, if I lose bad things, that's one thing because I know that they were bad and I shouldn't have had them. But if I lose things that are good, it kind of drives me to this place where I feel like what else is gonna, gonna be lost? I thought that this was safe. I thought that it was secure. And so it leads us into the place where we think of our lives. We primarily think of the way that we feel about our lives. Do I feel good about the things that I have or do I feel bad about the things that I've lost? And we get so consumed in the way that we feel that we forget that the way that we feel about our lives is not the most important thing about our lives. What we use our lives for is the most important things about our lives. And so here's what takes place. There's two dangers that can come regardless of what side of the fence they fall on. You can feel so good and safe and secure about the things that you have in your life that you can become distracted and lose focus on what your life is here for. And so if that's you, you'll likely find yourself as the type of person that takes all of what God gives you for granted until it's lost. Or you can feel so bad about your life that it leads you to a distress or a depression. And that now, it's not that you don't think about life and what your life is used for, but you're so distressed and discouraged by the loss of these things that you lose the fervor and the strength that it takes to really use your life for something. So whether your life is good or bad here at this time, we both fall into the danger of losing the focus of what our lives are here for, what it is that God place this here in this world for. And so what I want to do and what I want to ask is how do we maintain consistency in this life when we find ourselves constantly waffling in between being impressed and secure by the things that we have or being distressed and depressed by the things that we've lost. And for that, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 13. And I just want to continue that the context of where we're at. What's going on is this, right? Uh, next week is Easter. It's the, it's the time each year where we take a step back and reflect that our Savior died on the cross for our sins and he was raised. If you've grown up in church, you would know that this week is called Palm Sunday, right? This was the week that Christ comes into the town and it's the last week of his life. Well, as you come to the gospel of Mark, one thing that you find out is that one third of this book, out of the 16 chapters, six of them teach us about the last week of Christ's life. So as Mark is trying to tell a group of Christians how it is that they can walk faithfully with Christ He says, looking at the last week of his life is so important that I don't want to just do it in a blur. I really want to stretch this thing out because I really want you to know that as we walk with Christ through his death and to his death, what we'll see is our true purpose for living. So in Mark 13, this is in the last week of Christ's life, and he spends his time with the disciples. And what we find is that they're much like us. Let's start here in chapter 13, verse 1. And there's three things that Christ is going to give us. The very first one is this. He's going to tell us how we should treat the things in this life that are impressive or that we tend to find our security in. And then he's going to move on and tell us how it is that we should respond when things are depressing And then lastly, he's going to give us where our eyes should turn. And the very first thing that we learn is this. The very first thing that he helps us see is this. Don't trust in what's temporary. Don't put your trust in things that are temporary. If it can leave, it eventually will leave. Don't put your trust in what's 
temporary. 13 verse 1, it says this. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? Don't trust in what's temporary. What goes on here is that Jesus has just spent these past few days in the temple proving that he's the perfect lamb of God ready to be sacrificed for our sins. He leaves this last time and the disciples turn back and they look at this great building and what they say is is so impressed by these stones. Now what you'll know uh, uh, about these stones is these stones were so big. There were some of them that weighed close to 600 tons. So as they turn back and they look at this, this is not like somebody that goes to New York for the first time and is wowed by all the skyscrapers and then they get used to it. These are guys that have seen this place of times in in their life and what goes on is they're still wowed and impressed they see how big all of this stuff is they see how firm it is and they think it's going to be permanent and it's going to last and they're so impressed by the security that they have and Jesus looks back and he says do you see all these stones They're all going to come down. They're impressed, but Jesus sees the insufficiency of what all of these guys put their hope in. Jesus makes an evaluation, right? So you look here in verse 3, and it says this, and as he sat here on this mount, it says that he sat opposite the temple. In chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus is in this church, and it says he sat opposite the treasury and what he does is he looks at the folks that give right and we all know that there's some folks that give a ton of money and some folks that give just a or this one uh, lady that gives these two cents and what christ says is she gave more than they all did because what they gave didn't even put a dent in their pockets but what she gave was more because it was all that she has. So Jesus sitting across from this place, he's giving an evaluation of it. And what we see is that Jesus has this inverted value of things. The things that people tend to praise, Jesus pays no attention to. Jesus praises. People tend to pay no attention to. Jesus praises. And so what he does is he sits back and he sees that people are putting their hope in this structure that they think is going to last forever. And Jesus says, in just a few years, this thing that seems like it's indestructible is all going to come down. This thing that looks permanent will end up being very pitiful. And what you have to know here is that the temple was at the heart of the life of these folks, right? So if you look throughout the Bible, one thing that you see is that uh, the nation felt like the presence of God dwelt in this ark. And then you go from the ark and God tells Moses to build this tabernacle or this tent. And so they move, they bring this tent and this ark would be in the tent and the Jews felt like God was with us because he was here in this tent and in this house. Then what goes on is they build this grand temple for God that lies right in the heart and they felt like God's here. So when we want to go and meet with God, this is where we go. It was destroyed and 
rebuilt, and this group takes great pride in that the presence of God is here. We have him. When we want to go to meet with him, we go to this place. So when Jesus says this is going to come down, their understanding of their concept of meeting with God and religion is shook. This lies at the heart of the security that they have with God. This hope, and Jesus says, don't put your trust in things that are temporary. I wonder what we put our hope in here. Oh, there's some of us here in this room, and we're at a place in life where we have it all. It seems like we have this golden touch where everything that we put our hands to thrives. Family is well and it's good. Your job is good. Marriage is well. Friendships, your church, all of these things. And it seems like life's good. But I want you to know, if what you have right now could be gone tomorrow, there is going to be a tomorrow that comes when it is all gone. And if your hope rests on it, then your hope goes right along with it. Verse 1 starts off and it says this, And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of the things that we see here and what we'll see through this text is as Christ comes here to the earth, one thing that he's trying to help us see is that God's presence was never meant to dwell in a place that could be built with hands. God's presence was always meant to be in a person and in a people. And so what goes on is Jesus, God in the flesh, as he leaves, he leaves to show this thing These stones are nothing more than an empty shell. The uh, presence of God is left, and it's not going to come back. It's like last week, uh, me and my wife and um, Pastor Tripp and Jess, we went out to eat. um, And we went to a place in town, and I've talked to a few folks here, and they said, John, uh, you mess things up for me, because when you're at the stage, you You talk about these spots and you say they're awful and I don't go for a long time, but then I go and it's good. So I'm not going to share the place, but there's this place that we went to and the service was horrendous. Like it, like 730, we get there at 10 (laughs) o'clock. I have to stand up and we walk and we're begging a manager to just give us our check so that we can leave. It was awful the whole night. Things were so bad. So as we leave, I mean, folks give the customary, well, see you next time. And it's like, no, you won't. We're leaving. And as we leave, we leave and we'll never come back here. As Jesus, who embodies the presence of God right now, as he leaves this place, this temple, what he's saying is he leaves because he never wants folks to feel that the presence of God is going to be in a place. It's not here. And he's trying to tell them, don't put your trust in things that are temporal and things that can be lost because if they can be lost, they will be lost. That It's not just sinful, but it's stupid. What he's trying to help them see is that time is going to be the great revealer of the insufficiency of all of these things that we put our hope in. And so as a church, one way that we try to remind ourselves of this truth is to be reminded of the fact that God's presence is not confined to these four walls here. God's presence is is not confined to the pastor that's on stage, to the people that have been impactful in your life here at the church. What you're going to find out is that 
people will change. They'll die. They'll depart. They'll leave from this place. They'll let us down. Folks will, will go and leave. But that does not jeopardize the fact that God always remains with his people. There's folks here in our church that have been so impactful here in our church. And like Richard prayed, we spend time and we pray all the time that God would raise folks up and send them out. Nancy and Charlie, who have been great and a godsend for the past few years, they'll leave here in a few months. Tanner and Shannon one day hope to go up to the other side of the world to, to share the great things that God has done. Corey and Megan, same way. Dustin and a group here hope to plant a church south of here in a uh, few months. And when our best and the brightest leave, our hope doesn't go with them. The spirit of God does, but we're reminded that we don't put our trust in things that we can lose. Because we will lose them and it will feel like a loss. But it's not the end of the world. Though it seems like when we do lose those things, that it is the end, end of the world. What I'm not saying is don't enjoy the people and the things that God gives you. What I am saying is don't rest your hope for joy on the people and the things that God gives you. And here's how you know if your hope is rested on those things. What do you do when you fear the loss of those things? If your hope is rested on what people think about you and how well they think of you, then when you fear the loss of those things, you'll disregard everything that God has said about the way that we should live in order to ensure that you protect that. We lie and we break God's law because we fear the loss of the respect of people. And we'll do all of what we can even if it's sin, in order to protect those things. That's a key way to know that our hope is built on something that's going to fade with time, temporary. Just don't put our trust in things that you'll lose. Don't put your trust in the temporary. Now this seems kind of harsh. It seems like these guys, and, and, and they're just saying, Christ, look, this is dope. It's big and it's strong. And, and Christ seems like, like this buzzkill you know it's it, it's like uh when me and pastor richard and mo will go out and eat um and i hate eating with both of those guys because what takes place is it turns into like top chef and him and mo will sit down and i'm just trying to enjoy the ribs that i have and they say well it's not smoked like this and it's not done like that and it just feels like I'm just saying that I like it. Why can't I just like it? Is that what Christ does here? Do folks just turn back and say, we like this. We love what y'all did with the place. And he comes and says, yeah, it's all going to be gone in 50 years. That's not what he does. He's trying to tell them, listen, don't put your hope in things that you can lose. And he tells them, hey, all of this stuff, the thing that you have put your hope in, what seems like the center of your religious life, he's saying it's going to come crumbling down. And so Mark 13 is all about the destruction of the temple. And so as sure as he tells them, don't trust in what's temporary as he tells them what seems to be the end of their world he's gonna say but in the same way don't tremble in the face of trouble don't trust in what you can lose don't fear the loss of these things so much that you tremble in the face of hard times mark chapter 
13, verse 4, they say, all right, tell us when. We just want to know when so that we can prepare. Um, kid, when I was young, uh, I used to be a pretty bad kid. Um, and so my mom would catch wind of things that I did. And what she would say is, John, when I get home, you're going to get it, right? And so what took place was I knew that destruction was coming, um, and I feared it so much so that whenever I heard keys jingle at the front door, I mean, I just went into shock. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up, just all of that, and I feared it. Well, then as time went on, what I found out was my mom never comes home through the front door. She all through the front door, and I wouldn't trip because I'm like, all right, that's not her. But then when I heard that garage, I knew destruction was coming, and that was her, and I should be cautious. So as Christ tells them, right, all of what you know, the things that you put your hope in as far as being able to relate to God, it's going to come down. What he starts off and he tells them is, wait, 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 wait. Their goal is, uh, their thought is, when is all of this going to come? And how do we know? And Christ doesn't want his people to live in perpetual fear. So he starts off and he gives them signs and says, hey, you know that it's going to come when this takes place. When these things take place, don't tremble or don't fear. And I just want to go through that really quickly. Verse 5 through 8. This is the front door, not the garage door. And it says this. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pain. So his first thing here is this. We live in a fallen world, so expect things to go wrong. Just because things go wrong, it doesn't mean that it's the end of the world or the end of your world. We live in a fallen world, expect it. His thing is when you hear of wars and when you hear of things go wrong, it's not because uh, for them this judgment was getting ready to come. It's just because we live in a world where people are fallen and sinful and there's seldom a time in the world where there's not war. So don't let, let, don't let that scare you. When you hear about all these things that go on in the world, this is just the broken world that we live in. It's crying out for redemption. One day things will be better, but that day is not today. Expect that, that things will go wrong. But as Christians, just because we expect it, it doesn't mean that we grow apathetic to the things that are wrong here in this world. Just because we know that it's normal, it doesn't mean that our hearts grow cold and that we're any less sympathetic to people that find themselves here in these hard times. So sign one, Christ says, fallen world, expect. But they went to, this is still the front door, verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over the councils, and you will be beaten and sent in the gods, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you ought to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Christ is as sure as it's a fallen world and stuff's going to go wrong. He's like, I want those of you that follow me to know that because of association with Jesus, 
there's never going to be a box that we fit in. Christians are never going to be largely accepted by the masses. There is no political party that finds himself perfectly lined up with all of God, all of what God wants. Christians always find themselves as the minority and on the outskirts. And he's saying, when this takes place, don't think that it's because this destruction of the temple is impending. Just know this is the way that things will be. But as sure as God God is the great cause of this, he tells them again, don't be anxious. That even in the midst of all of this hard stuff, what takes place is good things come from it. God says, as a result of this adversity, you're going to be placed in front of influential people and the gospel will be preached. So as Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, that's going to take place a few years from where they are. You look at the book of Acts and what you see is Paul. Paul is a guy that's turned and his life's been transformed. And as a result of what takes place, Paul finds himself in front of kings. And you go to Acts 26 and you find out Paul is in front of this king and they ask him why he's there. And as he proclaims the gospel, this one king says, man, Paul, in a short time, would you try to convince me? As Paul's writing the letter of Philippians, at the end of it, what Paul says is, hey, y'all, I want you to know all of us greet you, especially those from the household of Caesar. Now, what that's like is a Christian in this day and age being captured by radical terrorists and thrown in jail for them for their faith and them writing back saying hey y'all all of the saints greet you especially all of those guys that are here in the jail with me that the gospel advances in the midst of hard times so when we're ostracized for our faith when we find our, ourselves on the outskirts, he's saying, don't feel like anything funny takes place. And it's easy for us to talk about that in the concept of a nation. It's harder for us to talk about that in the context of people that may share our same last name. And so what he says is, as sure as the gospel can tend to divide us against the nation that we live in because we don't share the same values. It can do the same thing in the family with those that share our last name. I can tell you countless stories of folks who had on their heart when our goal was to plant this church here, folks who moved into the West End or the Southwest Side Years ago, when things weren't, um, weren't what they are now. And it wasn't the conversations that they had with their friends that were the worst. It was the ones that they had with their families. That they'd say, well, you mean to tell me that you're going to take my daughter or my grandbabies into a place where they could potentially lose their lives. Folks that have a heart to take the gospel from here to the hardest places in the world. You mean to tell me that you're going to take them to a place where things aren't safe? Yes. Because as far as Christ is concerned, what we live for is not this life here. His value system is is different. And as soon as you find yourself talking about competing values, it doesn't matter where you are. From the nation that you're in to people that share your last name, it can cause division and the loss of these things 
help to show us what it is that we really want the most. What will we do when we fear the loss of these things? Will we acquiesce? Will we step back? Or even in the face of the loss of acceptance from our nation to our family, will we stick with the Lord and continue to follow follow Christ? And Christ says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Then he goes on in verse 14, and here, as he talks to a group of folks that is getting ready to face the destruction of the center of their lives, he brings up this verse. Now, here's where things can start to get a little kind of giving. And so what I want to do here is I just want to give us enough information to be able to make sense of what God has called us to do. I once heard it said that communication is like creating a sculpture that you start off with this big block of wood and you just want to take away all of the, the, the stuff that you don't need so that the point is clear that we just want to remove the unnecessary so that the necessary can speak. And that's what we're going to do here. As I read this first part, um, it may be confusing and y'all are going to say, what's that? But I'm going to go through it quickly so that we don't spend a bulk of the time here. This is the sign that they should look for. And it says this, but when you see the abomination of desolation, verse 14, standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not take place in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never ever will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ. So look, there he is. Do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. You read that and you say, what does that mean? What's the abomination of desolation and why are we to flee or what takes place? Here's what takes place as briefly as I can, just so that we, we can see what goes on here. The Jews would be familiar with what this term is prophesied in the book of Dan and And what takes place for them is they had this festival of lights, right? Or what we would know as Hanukkah. And what took, took, took place was about 150 years before Christ was born, this pagan came into the temp- temple and set up this statue of Zeus, right, where folks were, were to worship their God. Jews at this time, they didn't eat, eat pork, but he slaughtered pigs there to defile this place, roasted ribs, pig's feet, all that here. So the Jews were disgusted by what took place here. And this was called an abomination of desolation. The temple was defiled. Miraculously, what took place was that folks came in and in this revolt, they restored the temple to its glory. And folks, praise God. And to this day, folks sell a our Jews celebrate Hanukkah to remember the time that the uh, temple of God was cleansed. And so what Christ says here is, hey, I want y'all to, to know y'all here, or those that he, he talked to, there's going to be a time where something like that takes place. And do you know the advice that he gives them? Flee, 
run. Don't stand in and fight. This is it. This is the garage door. You wanted to know when things would come down. Christ says, this is when it's going to come down. Flee. And so what, what takes place is we know that he's trying to say this to a group because he gives geography, right? Those of you that are in this place, flee. Don't try to go down into your house and pack up things and take the China wedding pictures and just run and get out because things are going to come down. And the whole point of this, the Judea that he, we look here and say, well, what does it mean for us to flee Judea? Where's the Judea that he's trying to tell me to flee? Jesus talks to this group and he tells them this temple is going to come down. And I want to give you this sign so that where it does, you'll flee. And so what we pull from that is a few truths. And the very first one is this, that the God that we serve is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what's going to take place. And Jesus is proving this by predicting what's going to take place. 40 years from this time, this happens. Folks come in and they destroy the temple. Jesus right here proves God's sovereign, God's in control. And so a big thing that we learn from here is this. Christians, God's people, are not storm chasers. It's not that you are more holy if you find yourself constantly going into the face of trouble or danger. There's times in the Bible where Jesus goes clear to his death. But then there's times where folks are getting ready to kill him and he leaves. There's times in the book of Acts where God tells Paul to stay right where he is and endure hard times. And there's time in the book of Acts where Paul is getting ready to be killed and they say, get out. So as Christians, we don't chase danger. We follow Jesus. So we don't condemn folks when they don't feel led to go into the same places that we do. We follow Jesus. Sometimes he calls us to very, very hard places. And sometimes he tells us to free and to be forewarned is to be prepared and ready. The next thing that we learn here is that adversity is often God's tool to advance the spread of the gospel. You go to the book of Acts and what you find out is that the church blows up and things are good. And then Christians can kind of get to a place where they sit back and they tend to rejoice and they're glad that things are comfortable and they have this spot to sit in. And what takes place is persecution. And when that gets sent, the gospel spreads. And do you know why it spreads? Because uh, pretenders are weeded out. There's something about finding yourself in very, very hard times that makes it very hard to pretend. Pressure, when those things come in our life, what they do is they force us to prioritize what's most important. And if the gospel is not most important to you, then when hard times come, you back out. And this is one of the great blessings, and I know we've talked about it so much here in the past few weeks. This is one of the great blessings about the political landscape that we find ourselves in in this day and age. Because it's clear, as we've talked through, that like there is no more Christian veneer that kind of shrouds any party. There's no comfortable place to just sit in. And as time goes on and on and on, it's going to be abundantly clear that if we're Christian and we value the things that Christ does, we do not fit in. But that's God's great blessing for us. Because in those times, 
we're reminded, like the point here, that God's with us and we feel his presence in hard times. And not only is God with us, but what hard times do is they make us so dependent on one another that the petty things that divide us right now seem small and we see them for what it is. So like Tim Keller says, we don't pray for hard times, but we do prize them when they come. Don't pray for hard times. We do prize them when they come. So if we don't put our trust in things that we'll lose and we don't tremble in the face of trouble, what do we do? And I think the point here is that Christ calls us to turn our eyes towards him and to stay tuned. Turn our eyes towards him and stay tuned for the coming of our Lord. In this text, there's this clear break. God says, all of these things that you put your trust in, they're all going to come down. But what takes place is there is going to be a time where Christ himself comes. Drop down to verse 24. It says this, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. There's this clear break and God tells them the temple will be destroyed. But that's just this backdrop. It's not a tragedy it's this, it's this great triumph. It's going to pave way to the coming of, of, of the Son of Man. Nobody mourns the loss of a caterpillar when it goes into a cocoon and, it, and, and, and it's not what it was because it gives way to something better. And so Christ's point is the temple is going to be destroyed, but that's a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because nobody else will ever be confused and think that they're nearer or farer from God's presence because they're nearer or farther from this place. The temple is going to be destroyed and Jesus is not going to rebuild that one because he wants it to be clear that the presence of God doesn't dwell in a place, but it dwells with him. And as he comes back, right, one thing that's clear is that as he's seated at the right hand of God right now, and as he's in all places at all times, what that means is that there is no sinner that is any further from God than any other sinner. There's no sinner that's any more lost. There were people that were closer to Jerusalem and felt like they had an advantage. But if we know that the presence of God does not dwell in a place, but in a person, then it brings great hope to all of us because we're reminded that there's no sinner further from God. There's no one outside of his reach. And one day what's going to take place is Christ is going to come back. For those that are his. And so I want to share right now. If you're here. Don't know this Jesus. And you feel this weight of your sin. And you know and you've read. And it's clear in the Bible. That one day as Christ comes back. He is going to come back to judge. And you feel like. There's no way that he would look at somebody like me. And say that I'm okay. Because he's seen the things that are wrong with me. I want you to know that when he comes the second time, you don't want that to be the first time that you meet him. The first time that Christ came here, he came in mercy to present and to show all of us 
that there is a way to have relationship with God that doesn't have to, uh, that's not about you trying to keep these rules. Jesus kept all of the rules perfectly for us to let us know that there is a way to God that has nothing to do with the rules that you keep, but a relationship with Jesus, and it is extended to all of us, regardless of how far that you think you are from, from God. And if we would just acknowledge the fact that we have sin, like Bob helped us do when we came, when he came up here, agree with God about the state of our sin, the state of our heart, the state of our soul. Repent of that sin, not just saying that we're sorry, but turning and walking in a different direction. We can be saved and we can look forward to meeting Christ as he comes. So we don't put our eyes on the things in this world that we think are going to provide us hope because time's going to show us that all these things are going to be gone. Nor do we turn our eyes in fear towards the horrendous things that go on here in this world right now. But we turn our eyes to Jesus and we stay tuned for his coming. Verse 32, it says this. But concerning that day when the Bible says that day, it refers to the time where Christ is going to come back and make things right. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not the angels nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Stay awake. For you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Again, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Time and time again, what his point in all of this is the temple will be destroyed. It's not a tragedy. We don't mourn that. It's a triumph because what that does come and bring God's presence with him. And then in this last part, what he says is that our entire lives should be shaped by this truth. The coming of of Jesus, the fact that we wait for him is not just something for people that love to read the Left Behind series and all these uh, end times. This is the center of the Christian life. It's the hallmark of what we believe as Christians that Jesus, as sure as he died, as sure as he raised, one day he is going to come back and make things right. And in light of that, it shapes the way that we live. We live as those that stay tuned or that wait for it. Um, at the end of last year, my wife and I bought a house in West End. And um, so when we moved in, what we did is we called Comcast, right? And we said, hey, all right, when can you install cable and internet and all that? And they said, well, we can uh, two weeks from now. And so we're like, all right, all right. And so they get on the phone and what they say is, hey, um, we're going to come to your house sometime between Monday and Friday, between 3 a.m. and 9 p.m., right? You know how they give those big times. And so what takes place is if you miss them, it takes forever to get them to come back. And so because I anticipate their coming, my whole life changes. From Monday to Saturday, 3 a.m. to 9 p.m., I don't leave my house. If I have any meeting, I, I, I tell folks, ah, you, you've got to come to the house. Why? Because I'm waiting on Comcast. You want me to go out? I can't because if I go out, I'll miss them. 
Uh, you want me to hang out? You want me to talk on the phone? I, I, I can, but I have to make sure that two people don't call at the same time so I, you know, so I don't click over because I don't want to miss them. My whole life is shaped by I'm waiting for them to come. It lies at the heart of what my week looks like. I take the week off of work. I do all of this stuff just to make sure that I'm there when they come. Why? Because I really believe that they're coming. And I really want what they have when they come. Listen, what Jesus is saying is that for the Christian, for the person that really believes that he is going to come back, it should shape everything. It should rearrange every relationship that we have every friendship that we have with somebody that doesn't know him should revolve around trying to redeem the conversations and situations so that we can use all of what we have so that they'll meet him because one day he is coming and we don't want them to meet him for the first time when he comes we want them to look forward to that Every conversation that we have, it shapes it that we find ourselves. If we're involved in a conversation, then we take responsibility for where that conversation goes. Influence. We don't, that we don't sleep on the fact that we have influence. We don't sleep on the fact that we have information that is vital to the, their life and their well-being. Every time that we gather as a church, every time that we find ourselves frustrated by something that somebody else in our church, in our family has done to us, if we really believe that he's coming one day and the task that he's provided to us is to prepare one another for his coming, then we don't want to be the type of folks that are found fighting when he comes over petty things where people that are outside of the church look inside. And when Christ comes down, they said, I would have been a part of that group. I would have anticipated your coming, but all I saw was a group of people fighting and I didn't want to be a part of that. We want to be a community that is so eager to the coming of our Lord and Savior that we're not people that are found fighting. We're people that are found forgiving so that anybody that's on the outside, they don't look in and say, there's no way that I would want to be a part of that, but they say, how do I find myself as a part of a community where when I do wrong and it's blatant and it's out there, when I offend people, I'm not ostracized and put out, but I'm forgiven and accepted and loved. And we say, well, come on in and let me tell you about our Savior. Let me tell you about what he did. Let me tell you about how he's changed us. And let me tell you about how he's coming back. He's going to come back one day and he's going to set up shop. And what that does is it gives us the freedom not to retaliate. It gives us the freedom not to make our life about these petty things. It gives us the freedom not to be consumed by the loss of very, very good things that we have. We'll lose them. But we know that that just serves as a backdrop. It only paves the way to something better. So my prayer is that we would be the type of church that we would find ourselves as the type of people that live in light of the hope that Christ is going to come back and he is going to make things right one day and that we would so love our neighbor that we would use every platform and opportunity 
that we have to prepare as many people as we can for the coming of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Yeah. Uh, Father, we thank you that even though there's lots of things in your word that are confusing, there are things that are crystal clear. And one thing that is crystal clear is the fact that you're going to come back. Lord, as sure as your words of punishment are, we know your words of pardon are just as sure. And so, Father, I pray that we would rest in the fact that we don't have to do, we don't have to earn you've done for us, but that doesn't make us those that are lazy, nor does it make us the type of people that lament constantly the loss of things, but it make us those that look forward to your return. And God, I pray that you would cement that truth deep in our heart and it would shape the way that we live our lives in the here and now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.